Good morning, Mission View Church. What a great time being able to, to just sing together. And uh, great song uh, to think about our Savior and to think about who He is and, and what He has done, uh, that He is victorious. Are you thankful this morning for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Uh, are you thankful this morning that our Savior is not dead, but He is, in fact, alive? And, uh, you know, we have great excitement around Easter when Easter's here and Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate that, but that is truly something to celebrate every day as a believer in Jesus Christ. We serve a risen Savior, and uh, apart from that, our faith would be in vain. If Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain, but uh, we serve a risen Savior. So, so good to know that and to rejoice in that. Uh, my name is Bruce. I'm one of the pastors at Maranatha Bible Church. I serve as the associate pastor there, and I, I serve in the area of preaching and also as one of our elders uh, on our elder board. And uh, Steve invited me to come over this morning to share with you all uh, as you're continuing in this study in Nehemiah. And uh, I was so excited to be able to come share. I said, great, what am I, what am I preaching on? He said, Nehemiah chapter 9. And so I was like, great, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah is a great book, a lot of great leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah, a lot of exciting things happening in the book of Nehemiah. And I said, well, what is it specifically you want me to focus in on, on Nehemiah 9? And Steve said, I want you to focus in on repentance. So here I am as a visitor to your church to open God's word and to share with you from my loving heart on repentance in Nehemiah chapter 9. And I'm excited to do that this morning. I can't wait to be able to, to look into the word together. Uh, just to tell you a little bit uh, about my family, what's going on where we are as we get into the message time this morning, uh, my wife Shoshana and I uh, welcomed our fourth baby girl into our family this past November, and uh, so we have four little girls now. Uh, our oldest, Ella, will be 10 this summer in July. Our youngest, Leah, uh, is just over four months now, and uh, so we're excited about what the Lord's going to do in her life. Um, Sophia, our second, she uh, just turned seven, and... Um, Lydia, who was my youngest and now no longer the youngest, uh, is going to be six years old here in May. And so we have a soon-to-be 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, soon-to-be 6-year-old, and a 4-month-old. And so crazy times at the Rosa household. And uh, we're enjoying life right now and seeing all that God's doing in our little girls' lives. And uh, it is great. It is so good, so fun. Uh, but it's good to be around adults as well. And, uh, and so I'm excited to be able to share with you in God's Word today. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, my oldest daughter, Ella, this past uh, weekend um, was complaining because she said she hurt her, her ankle. And so if you watched Ella, um, she plays softball and, and she does all, all kinds of different things, but she hurt her ankle. And, uh, and so if you watched Ella this past weekend, we went to the store or we were walking on the sidewalk areas, or we were walking outside, she was walking with a very noticeable limp. Uh, sometimes it was so noticeable that, that she'd be walking and she'd have this leg like this and she would just do this when she was walking. Very dramatic. And, uh, and I said, honey, what's, what's wrong? And she was like, I, oh, my leg hurts so bad. It just hurts so bad. I'm like, well, can you, can you walk? And I want to make sure she's okay. And, and she said, yeah, it's okay. And then other times I would, I would look at her and she, she would kind of be doing it, but not as, as labor intensive in the way she was walking. And she would keep an eye on it and, and wanted to make sure that we can, you know, care for her as she needed cared for. So we got home from the store and, and it was nice outside. The kids wanted to play outside. So I'm like, yeah, you guys can play outside and I'll be out in a minute. So I went in the house. And when I come back out, Ella is on our trampoline, jumping on the trampoline, 
doing like front flips and cartwheels and, and all this different stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, that, that ankle must be really hurting her. And so she wants to play soft, catch with soft. I'm like, come on out. So I'm throwing her pop flies and she's running, getting this up. And I said, what, what, what happened to your leg? I said, it's feeling better. And she kind of like dropped it a little bit like, wow, well, you know, well, it's still, still a little sore, but it, it is feeling much better. I'm like, I'd say it's feeling much better. I think you actually forgot that that it was actually hurting you, and so now it's perfectly okay. Everything looks perfectly fine. Have you ever seen that where someone is nursing an injury and and they're maybe they're maybe exaggerating a little bit about how 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 bad it really is hurting them and how much of an effect it's really taking? But before too long, they kind of forget about that and they just are themselves again. And they sometimes pretty quickly, sometimes within minutes, uh, if it's your kids that they forget about that. Um, in many ways, I think that that illustration uh, has a lot to do with what is typical in our uh, reaction as far as what does repentance look like. What is our reaction as it relates to repentance? Because a lot of times what happens when we consider repentance as believers, uh, remorse and sorrow and turning from sin, uh, there's a dramatic response oftentimes when we're caught in sin. Dramatic response. Uh, so much so that it, it literally affects everything about our lives for that moment. And we go overboard with our confession and our anguish and our, and our godly repentance before God because we are so sorry about what we have done. And to anybody that sees us or watches us or listens to us, they'd say, man, that person is repentant. That person is confessing. That person is sorrowful for their sin. But what happens sometimes within hours or within a day? Or a couple of days, and maybe it's a week. We, we maybe forget about that godly confession and repentance and go back to what we are so used to going back to. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever done that before? Sometimes there's such a dramatic reaction when it comes to sin because it, it cuts and it hurts or we're for caught in a sin, have you ever caught your kids doing something they shouldn't do? They were disobeying, and their reaction when they were caught were tears because they were caught. And I'm so sorry, I'm never going to do that again. And what happens the next day when that opportunity comes up for them to do it again? Guess what? They do it again. And aren't we like that sometimes as it relates to our walk with God? We find ourselves doing our thing our way. And then maybe the conviction of the Spirit of God comes into our life or another brother or sister in Christ challenges us or confronts us. And when they do, when we realize what we've done, our reaction is such that we say, God, I am so sorry and, and I'm confessing and I want to turn from this sin. I want genuine repentance in my life. And by all accounts, what we say in our initial reaction says, yes, this is real, this is authentic, this is genuine. But what follows is the same old, same old thing. We've been examining in the, in the nation of Israel, in the book of, of Nehemiah, uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God were people who were going through this cycle, it seemed like, where they would be obeying God and then they would disobey God. And then they would be obeying God and then they would disobey God. And they were in this cycle. And God's promise that Pastor Steve shared at the very beginning of the series in Deuteronomy, that if you follow me, if you obey me, if you keep my laws and my commands, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will care for you. I will be your God. I will bring my blessing on you. And this promise that God made to them, that obedience would bring blessing, was something they knew 
They knew they should follow. They knew they should do. And at times, it was so real to them. And at times, it was right in front of their face. And they were on their faces before God. But what happens so quickly is when pressures and cares and all the things of the world come around us, what do we do? We go back to what we want to go back to. And so often we see that in the nation of Israel, and we see that in our lives as well as followers of Christ. If you're like me, you see that in your life at times. I want to pick up in Nehemiah chapter 9, where in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, Ezra was reading the law, and they were celebrating the Feast of Booths, and, and they were celebrating this. And when the law had been read, it says when the law had been read, and they realized really their, their faults, their sins, the errors of their way, they were weeping, they were sorrowful, and they were told, listen, you know, do not sorrow, do not grieve, this is a time of celebration, and look, look towards the future, look towards what God wants to do, and what God is going to do in your life. But when they were confronted with the law, when they were confronted with the truth of God's word, there was a repentance, there was a sorrow, there was a confession, and we see that continuing in Nehemiah chapter 9. And this morning, I want to make six observations from Nehemiah chapter 9, six observations uh, that I think we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 9 that are very important and relevant for us. And from there, I want us to consider uh, four truths from Nehemiah 9 that I think can impact our lives, and I want to give us some specific applications that we can take with us and that we can apply to our lives today. So look at Nehemiah chapter 9. First, I want us to see that there is immediately a posture of repentance in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. A posture of repentance. I'm going to read the passage for you. Uh, I believe it will be up on the screen as well. Nehemiah 9, 1 to 5. It says, On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. This is a posture of repentance, a posture of confession, a posture of sorrow and remorse because of their sin. Verse 2, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There's an awful lot we can get into in these verses about all the meaning that's going on here. For time, we don't have to get into all of it this morning. I want to get the big picture. But I encourage you, study all this out to see the dramatic steps that they were taking to honor, to seek to honor the Lord here in their confession. Verse 3, they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood, bear with me on the names, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. Say that real, go through that real fast when you're home today. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hudiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I, I want us to notice, first of all, in Nehemiah chapter 9, that there is a posture of repentance among the believers that are here, among the Israelites. They are, they are posturing themselves in a posture of repentance. They are on their faces. They are fasting. They are in confession of their sins. They have sackcloth and ashes on their head. They are in, in a position before God where they have recognized they have sinned. They are at fault. They are in error, and they are wanting to make it very clear before the Lord that they are sorrowful. They are repenting of this sin. They're confessing to God. I find what's so interesting here is it says they read from the law for a quarter of the day. 
And then it says another quarter of the day they spent confessing their sins. I, I don't know when the last time that we have spent any amount of time just contemplating before God, God, show me, reveal to me the areas of sin in my life that I can confess to you, that I can make known to you, that you already know that I'm acknowledging before you. But I want to tell us that it is something that is very important that we are honest about what sins are present in our lives today. It's, it's, it's important that we understand that if God in His Word, or God through the preaching of His Word, or God through other believers has helped us to come to a conclusion about sin that is present in our lives, that we need to have an accurate response to a posture of repentance that we respond accordingly. Here, the Israelites should be commended because they are confronted with their sin as the law is read. They recognize their sin, and they're at least demonstrating an outward show here of repentance before God. They're on their faces. They're clothed in sackcloth. They have earth on their heads. They're fasting, confessing, praying, and just absorbing the law, a posture of repentance. I wonder when was the last time that we felt such strong sorrow over our sin that we have against God that we spent an amount of time before the Lord being fully vulnerable to him saying in confession, God, these are things that I have to confess to you and give me the strength to just completely turn from these things. It was something that the Israelites were confronted with and they were having an appropriate response. There, there was no hiding from this. Isn't it a foolish thing for you and I as believers sometimes to think that we can truly keep anything from God? Have you ever had someone come into your life that maybe challenged you because there was something going on in your life, uh, whether a, a habit uh, or a relationship or, or a, um, a job situation or relationship situation that you've had friends or family confront you with, and when they confronted you with it, you knew that what they were saying was accurate and right, and this is what God had in a timely fashion for you to hear. And, and when you respond in their presence, it's one of these things where you're like, yes, I get it. This is what God wants. But then when they're not around, you kind of try to hide what you're actually doing. My kids are like this. That in front of me, sometimes there'll be an open book and everything like that. But then when I'm not around and they're up in their room or they're doing their own thing, you know, maybe they're doing something they shouldn't have to be, they shouldn't be doing as though I don't know because I don't. But how foolish is it for us sometimes to think that we can hide anything from God? Do we realize today that what we do in private or in public is fully exposed equally before God? Do we realize today that when we're driving in our car and we're simply thinking things to our own minds, God sees and knows what's on our minds? Do we understand that the Word of God says, there's not a word on my tongue, O God, that you do not altogether know? God sees, God knows all things. And so what a, a true posture of repentance would be for the life of the believer is to say to God, when confronted or convicted of sin, to fully acknowledge and expose that to our great God who already sees it and to seek to confess it and forsake it. That's what's going on here in the life of the, of the nation of Israel. They're confessing their sin to God. They're allowing God to, to see that their acknowledgement that they have sinned against him. There's a, a posture of repentance. I want us to see, secondly, in verses 6 through 15, there's a proper perspective of God's authority. And what I shared kind of leads into that, a proper perspective of God's authority. Look at verses 6 through 15. You are the Lord. You alone 
You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him of, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by your servant Moses, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Here's what I love about verses 6 through 15. There's a proper perspective of God's authority. There's a proper perspective of God. Uh, this is what's so amazing to me is you recount the things that they list there and that they say, God, you are the one that did this and you are the one that did that and you are the one that caused this and you are the one that caused that. Here's what I find so interesting about this. When you think about the parting of the Red Sea and if someone says, hey, who was it that parted the Red Sea? Who would you say parted the Red Sea? Moses, right? When someone says, hey, who was it in the Old Testament that parted the Red Sea? Moses parted the Red Sea. He held out his staff and, and the waters were parted. Who, who was it that, that came to, to Pharaoh and said, if you don't let my people go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring these plagues upon Egypt? Who was it that did that? It was Moses. Who was it that led the people out of Egypt? Moses. Who was it that brought the law and the commandments down from the mountain to the people of Israel? It was Moses. 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 Moses was this great man in the nation of Israel's history. But here's what I love about the people's reaction here is they're acknowledging God. They're acknowledging the fact that Moses didn't part anything. God parted the sea. They're acknowledging that Moses didn't bring plagues on anybody. God brought plagues. Moses didn't lead anybody. God led the people out of Egypt. There's a proper acknowledgement and perspective of the authority that God has over any authority, power, or knowledge that man has. There's this acknowledgement in verse 6, that you are the Lord, you alone, it says. God, you are God. You're the only true living God. You are it. We serve you. We worship you. We acknowledge you. In a proper perspective on God's authority, in a proper perspective on God and who God is, is absolutely essential to having a life that is marked by genuine, authentic repentance to sin. We need to have a proper perspective and viewpoint on who God is and on God's authority and power if we want to live rightly before Him. 
And here's why this is such a struggle today. And here's why it was such a struggle in Old Testament times. Because there are always other voices who are seeking to mar, who are seeking to cloud, who are seeking to confuse as it relates to our understanding of who God truly is. There are a lot of voices out there today that are promoting a false view of God Almighty. There's a lot of literature out there today that is promoting a false view of God Almighty. There are a lot of movies out there today that are promoting a false view of God Almighty. And as believers in Jesus Christ, our source of authority for understanding who God is, recognizing who God is, his authority, his power, and exactly who he is, is found here and nowhere else. It's in the word of God. This is our foundation for understanding who God is. I shared with our our church at Maranatha a couple weeks ago uh, something I think was so important for us to understand about our understanding of who God is, is that anytime anyone shares anything with us about God and who God is or what they've experienced about God that is contrary or contradicting what the word of God says, it must be rejected. They must be rejected. There's a popular movie out right now off of a book that came out a number of years ago, and the book was called The Shack. How many of you have heard The Shack, the movie or the book? You've heard of it. Maybe some of you here and you're like, that's my jam, that's my book, that's my movie. Okay, listen, I don't want to offend you, but I want to share with you something. The God displayed in The Shack and the God displayed in the movie is not the God of the Bible. That is not an accurate picture of who God is. Some people would say it's fiction, it doesn't matter. It does matter because there's believers in Jesus Christ who have seen that movie or read the book and here's their reaction to that. This transformed my viewpoint about God. It completely revolutionized my thinking about God. Here's why. Because it is contrary to what the word of God says. God is not dependent upon man. God is not in heaven, helpless and hopelessly waiting, wringing his hands, hoping that man would just give him the authority to come into their life. God is not in heaven, not knowing what to do, because man is just in control of all things. God is sovereignly in control of all things. Nothing takes him by surprise. God does what he wills when he wills to do it. God answers to no one. And friends, we have to understand today that we have to have a proper perspective and viewpoint of God as a believer in Jesus Christ. And that authority rests in God's word. God is a loving God. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so that we might have relationship with him. God is love. But God is also holy. He is just He is righteous and true in all that he does, and he has all authority and power, and he does what he wills when he wills to do it. God is not dependent upon any human being. And there is so much that is out there today by way of literature and movies and entertainment and viewpoints that would say otherwise about God. We need to be focused and going back again and again to what the word of God has to say about who God is how God works, and what God wants for us as believers. And I think so often we attribute so much to so many things other than God. 
But in this passage here, the people are confessing before God their sin. They're in a position, a posture of repentance, and they're giving a perspective of God's authority and power that is right and that is true. God, you are the one that is responsible for all good things that we've had. God, you are the one who led us out of Egypt. You are the one who delivered us. You are the one that parted the Red Sea. You are the one that caused water to flow from the rock. You are the one that have given us the commandments. You are the one that led us by day and by night. You, God, are the one who has all authority and all power. Friends, do we have that same acknowledgement in our daily living before God about his authority in our lives? Do we acknowledge his authority and his power? Do we have a proper perspective of that? Number three, you see, as the passage goes on in verses 16 to 17, there's a proper proper acknowledgement of their own disobedience. In verses 16 and 17, it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You know what they say here? They basically just pull aside any blinders, any wool over the eyes, they get rid of everything and they fully just confess and are exposed the fact that it was our fathers, it was our people that were stiff-necked, refusing to obey. We were flat-out disobedient to you. There's a proper acknowledgement of their own sin and of their own disobedience. Listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, if we want to have genuine repentance as something that marks our lives when we sin, then we need to fully acknowledge the sin that so often is prevalent in our lives. The sins that maybe no one else is aware of, but we know. The sin that we struggle with when we get out of bed in the morning or when we put our, bed in the pillow at, or put our head on the pillow at night. The sins that no one else sees and the sins that everybody else sees. We need to be willing to be fully exposed before God and acknowledge with full exposure and full truth the sin that so oftentimes is prevalent in our lives. They did that. They acknowledged that. But look on as number four here, a proper acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. The last part of verse 17 says this, but you are a God ready to forgive. Can I get an amen to the fact that God is a God who is ready to forgive? Amen. You are a God who is ready to forgive. Praise God that you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Let me read this again because I think it's important for us to hear this again. Uh, Maybe you're here today and you're like, this is me. I I confess my sin, I repent of my sin, but then it seems like I go back to my sin. And I know that if I'm in Jesus Christ, I'm forgiven of my sins, but I go back to my sin. How could God possibly forgive me again? How is it that God could possibly want to use me? How is it that God could could possibly still want relationship with me? This is who God is. Look at what it says. It says in verse 17, after the refusal to obey, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding instead fast love. Your love, oh God, is steadfast. It ain't going nowhere. There's nothing that I am going to do to cause God to love me any less. There's nothing that you and I will do today or tomorrow that will cause our God, who has given his son for us, that is his children, if we are in him, there is nothing that you or I can do this week that's going to cause God to say, you know what, I just don't love you anymore. Because our God's love is steadfast. It remains. And he says at the end of that verse, you 
remain faithful. Contrary to us and what we so often are, God remains faithful. Your God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. He's faithful. He's faithful. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. Listen, you'd say, listen, I, you don't know what my sins are. Listen to this. They made for themselves another God to worship. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Friends, even when the nation of Israel made a golden calf and said, this is, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, attributing to something that man made, an act that only God Almighty could do, delivering them from Egypt. He says, even when they did that, you did not forsake them. You remained faithful to them. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns all Already hewn, hewn vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. You know what he says here? God, so many times we have been unfaithful and yet you remain a pillar of faithfulness. Friends, we can be so encouraged this morning. Our God is faithful. Would you say that with me? Our God is faithful. That's a reason to rejoice. That's a reason to live differently this week. That's a reason to tell people about a great God who is forever faithful to his people. Our God is faithful. They properly acknowledged God's faithfulness to them, even in spite of the sin that they so much embraced. Let's look at number five. There's a proper perspective next of the troubles they faced. Look at verses 26 to 31. Nevertheless, again, even this was God's faithfulness and all that God had done for them. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their sufferings, they cried out to you, and you heard from the heaven, and great according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, you saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. 
And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they returned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You know what they're recounting here? They're recounting the fact that the troubles that they faced, the conquering that they endured, all of the troubles, all of the anxieties, all of the fears, all of the things that took place in their, in their lives that would be attributed so often to God. Why have you allowed this? They attributed it all to the fact that it was for their disobedience that these things came upon them. They properly acknowledged their own fault in the circumstances and the situations that they found themselves in. Now, don't misunderstand God's faithfulness for being that which uh, is going to completely stop any correction from coming into our lives. Because God allowed so many of the things that happened for the nation of Israel to happen, to be conquered by other lands, to be enslaved to other lands, to endure hardship and all of these things because of the sin that they were committing. But what was God's response every time when they confessed and repented of their sin. He was faithful to them. And friends, maybe today in your life, you're facing some things in your life that you have no idea why you're facing them, and you can't get it. Maybe God, as a loving Heavenly Father, is bringing correcting into your life today. And every time something bad happens in the life of the believer, I'm not saying it's the correcting hand of God. And every time something that happens in the life of the believer that we don't get, I'm not saying it's because there's sin. But Paul the Apostle said the reason that many are sick among the church and why some have even fallen asleep is because of the sin that was prevalent. And so if God has revealed to you an area in your life that you need to confess and forsake and repent of today and you're refusing to and I'm refusing to, should we not as children of God expect the correcting hand of a loving father in our lives? That's what the nation of Israel was acknowledging here. They acknowledged their sin and they acknowledged the fact that the heartache and the pain and the suffering that they had been enduring was because of their own disobedience. Again, I'm not saying anytime any heartache or pain comes into our lives, it's because of sin. But there is a time when God has revealed sin to us as believers and we're refusing to turn from it that the correcting hand of God will come. And just as God got their attention... He's pretty good at getting our attention, isn't he? When there's something in our lives that shouldn't be there. But they acknowledged this. They had a proper perspective of the trouble they faced. And then the chapter closes with a renewed commitment to the Lord. Look at verses 32 to 38. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love... Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Here's a summary statement of the nation of Israel's responsibility and relationship with God. Verse 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. If that doesn't summarize our plot versus God's in our relationship with God, I don't know what else summarizes that better. You have altogether acted righteously and faithfully, and we have been wicked. 
So they're acknowledging before God. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the seal document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. You know what they're saying to God? We are declaring today a renewed commitment to you and your law. We are declaring today, God, that we are going to be faithful to you. We're declaring today that we have sinned and we have fallen short. We're declaring to you today that you have been entirely faithful and we have been entirely wicked. We're declaring to you today that all of the turmoil and pain and heartache that we've experienced has been because of our wrongdoing and our sin. And we confess it, we repent of it, we turn from it. And today we make a turning. We turn from the things that we've embraced and that we've followed that are wrong and we are making a commitment to you this day. There's a commitment to God, a renewed commitment to the Lord. And as we look at this and we can rejoice and we can clap and we can say, amen, finally, finally. But you know what follows? What's going to follow again in the nation of Israel has followed them every step so far and continued to follow them after this is they again would turn and be disobedient to their God. That so often is the case. There's sin Confession, repentance, commitment, and sin. And confession, repentance, commitment, and sin. And all the while, God remains faithful. God remains faithful to his people. Let's look at a number of truths to consider this morning. Number one, genuine repentance involves much more than words. Genuine repentance involves much more than words. Have you ever had someone who wronged you and they did something terrible and they said to you, I am sorry? And you hear those words, I am sorry, and you think, no, you're not. But they tell you, I'm sorry, and you're like, well, time will tell. And when you recognize and see that they go right back to the same thing again, don't you question, were you really sorry about that? You see, genuine repentance involves much more than words. Action is involved, commitment is involved, change is involved. Genuine repentance involves much more than words. Secondly, genuine repentance is rooted in a proper view and fear of Almighty God. Genuine repentance is rooted in a proper view and fear of Almighty God, a proper understanding of who God is, of what God expects, of what God desires, and understanding who God is. We serve a holy God. The three words that are describing God in heaven right now and that are day and night before him is that God is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if we're going to have genuine repentance in our lives for the sin that so often ensnares us, it is going to be rooted in a proper view and fear of Almighty God. Number three, genuine repentance involves a clear acknowledgement of personal sin. You see, the nation of Israel, they were acknowledging not that others had sinned, but that they had sinned. They were acknowledging not just that their forefathers had sinned and those that went before them had sinned, but they were acknowledging their own sin. 
They weren't just calling out other people on their sin. They were personally looking in and saying, we have sinned. Genuine repentance involves a clear acknowledgement of personal sin. Number four, genuine repentance involves a commitment to change. It involves a commitment to change. It involves a not just saying, I'm sorry and I'm confessing and, and I'm acknowledging this, but it involves a firm commitment to change. Repentance comes with a turning. There's a turning. There's a going one direction, stopping, and not just stopping from doing it, but a turning around and going the other direction. There's a commitment to change. When was the last time as a believer in Jesus Christ that our repentance, repentance involved more than words and that our repentance was finding its foundation in our understanding of who our holy God is? Where our repentance was that which clearly acknowledged the sin that was in our own personal lives because of our own personal doing. And that was followed up with a commitment to change. Let me give us some applications as we close. Number one, might we seek to grow in having a proper view and understanding of God? As we read God's word and get a better understanding and view of who God is, I can't help in my own life, and I would expect for all of us, that the more that we know of God and who God is and what God wants and what God expects, the more I understand and acknowledge I am not where I need to be yet. And so might we pursue having a greater knowledge and view of who God is and what God expects. That is going to happen as we get into God's word. The word of God needs to be our source for that authority. Secondly, might we be honest about personal sins? Might we be honest about personal sins? Let's be clear. We've all sinned. We all sin. So might we acknowledge that before God? He already knows. He already sees. And so let's acknowledge that before Him. Number three, follow through after confessing sin. Follow through after confessing sin. So often we are so good at, God, I'm sorry I did this and I, and, and I promise I'll never do it again. God, if you would forgive me and, and you would just make this, that this is something that you would forgive me of and, and help me through this, I promise I will never go back to it again. Let's follow through in our confession. Let's follow through. Let's make the changes that are needed. Number four, remember God is faithful. God does not forsake us. Remember in our confessing and in our repenting that God is faithful. He will not forsake you. There is nothing as a child of God that you can do tomorrow that will cause God's love and faithfulness to not be present in your life. There is nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to earn the love of God. There's nothing we can do to remove the love of God from our lives as his children. And number five, make a renewed commitment to obedience each day. Make a new commitment, a renewed commitment to obedience each day. I love how the psalmist says, God, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I think that's so valuable and important because we need God's mercies to be new every morning, don't we? And we're told his mercies are new. Every morning, great is your faithfulness, O God. When was the last time we woke up in the morning and the words out of our mouth and the actions that followed were this? God, this morning I am making a renewed commitment of obedience to you this day. When was the last time we made a renewed commitment of obedience to our God? 
Maybe today is the day we need to start doing that. Maybe today is the day we need to confess sin that for so long we've embraced and for so long we've allowed to stay in our lives. We need to confess that. We need to repent that. We need to turn from that. And we need to make a renewed commitment of obedience to him. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment as we wrap up? Maybe this morning God's challenged you or convicted you about some areas in your own life that you've recognized he's revealed that are sin and you need to confess, you need to repent of, you need to forsake those areas. Maybe God's elevated something in your mind that you're like, you know what, for too long I've, I've ignored the prompting of the Spirit of God in my life to deal with this issue. Would you take a moment right now and confess that to him and, and, and pour your heart out to God asking for his forgiveness and asking him to help you to have have victory over that area of sin in your life today. Would you do that right now? If you're here today and and you had an area and you'd say, I want to follow up, I want to make a renewed commitment this morning of obedience to God. God, I want to make a renewed commitment of obedience to you today. And my desire is that every day I would make this renewed commitment of obedience to you. If that's you this morning, would you slip up your hand? I want to pray for you as we close. Anybody? Good, I see that. Yeah, good, good. Praise the Lord. Good. Yeah, thank you. You can put them down. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not even sure what that's all about, I want to encourage you before you leave today, to talk to one of the, the Mission View team members that are here, talk to me, someone that invited you and how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The word of God tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Forgiveness of our sins and relationship with God is found in his son, Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we can have life through belief in him. If you don't know what that's all about, please don't leave today without talking to someone about how you can have that relationship. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. I pray for each person this morning, Lord, that raised their hand, that want to make a renewed commitment of obedience to you. I pray that you would help us to be bold in our obedience. God, I pray that you would help us to confess with great clarity and truth and acknowledgement our own personal sin. We pray for every person here, Lord, that desires to be obedient to you. Please give us the strength and the wisdom to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel this week. We present this to you, Lord, believing you will hear us and answer. In Christ's name, amen.